This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We welcome you to Real Talk on this uh, March 16th morning. Ryan Jesperson, John Hicks with you. This is uh, a bit of a, a different <clears throat> start this morning. We've, we've just received news, and most of you will hear this later in the day. Uh, but but uh, just uh, moments ago, within the last half hour, uh, news breaking that uh, two police officers in our home city of Edmonton shot and killed uh, uh, responding to a domestic call. Uh, early this morning, this is just hours ago, this being reported by the CBC 15 minutes before we're talking to you here now live, uh, just after 830 Mountain Time. <clears throat> this is um, obviously a horrific situation, and we don't know a lot of details uh, around the call. We don't know uh, how the people involved in the call are doing. What we do know right now is that two Edmonton officers that had responded to a domestic call in Edmonton's Northwest. I'm going to tell you just on a on a personal note as well, um, uh, Johnny, just my wife just texted me a few minutes ago, uh, having just walked our son to school. This is right near uh, this is right in our neighborhood. This yeah. is this is right near where our house is. So mm-hmm. this is something that, that resonates even I don't know a little bit more strongly. It, 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 it's it's shocking, obviously. If you know Edmonton, just off 111th Avenue, just uh, heading west out of the downtown, around 132nd Street at 114th Avenue, the Baywood Apartments is where the police presence is most strong right now. Uh, Scott Patterson, uh, an Edmonton police spokesperson, just moments ago releasing a statement: the EPS mourning the loss of two of its patrol officers killed in the line of duty while responding to a call earlier today. We don't know any details on the identity of the officers killed or the circumstances of this shooting, uh, but EPS saying that they'll be releasing that information later today. It takes me back to, I can I can think of mornings working in talk radio. It's a, it's a bit of a different feel here. You know, we do this podcast. It's more of a talk show. Yeah. We don't cover a lot of breaking or developing news, but... Of course, this is a different situation, and, and my mind goes back. I think of mornings where we had learned overnight that a an RCMP officer in, in the city of St. Albert, just north of Edmonton, had been killed. David Wynn, um, you know, exercising a, a, a warrant at the Apex Casino and, and, and shot and killed in the parking lot. I think mm-hmm. of uh, Constable Daniel Woodall. Uh, who was working with the Edmonton police, their their uh, anti-hate unit, or their hate crimes unit, as they call it. Uh, again, exercising a warrant, showing up to a front door uh, to arrest an individual who who shot uh, the constable in the back through the door. And, uh, and having got to know, um, in tragic circumstances, some of these family members, I, you know, I, th- I think of, of Claire Woodall today. I think of, of Shelley uh, McKinnis win today. Uh, I think of the families of these officers today, some of them who may uh, just I mean, this is part of the reason why, of course, the EPS at this point, as we talk to you, as we're recording this show, why they've not released details uh, potentially and probably in part because of some of these uh, bereaved family members not yet knowing what's happened or having not yet been informed And uh, there's not a lot to say right now that would be profound or that would provide any level of comfort. But but we will say, uh, of course, uh, on behalf of of the team here at Relay at at Real Talk and and myself personally, our our deepest sympathies to the Edmonton Police Service and to the family members of these two officers. You know, we take it for granted uh, for sure 
that there are men and women across this country and around the world uh, that every single day show up to work not knowing what that day will entail. They don't know what calls they'll get. They don't know who they'll uh, be responding to or interacting with. They don't know who they'll be looking to speak with or put the cuffs on. Uh, And they don't know the circumstances in which their lives will be threatened or in some cases extinguished. And it's not lost on me. And I can think of uh, situations personally in our lives. We had a break and enter, an active situation many years ago, John, where uh, our our car had been broken into. I made the dumb mistake of leaving house keys in the car. Mm -hmm. The registration had been taken. The address was available. The keys were gone. We assumed potentially that our house was being broken into our condo at that time. That was indeed the case. And when we called 911, the police came roaring in. Uh, they just they, they, they just enter a situation, uh, not to say they're not trained, they're trained, but w- without pause, uh, without I won't say without regard for their personal safety, but they put their service first and they show up every single day uh, and they never know when a call, a domestic call. Tragically, uh, we were talking about I mean, we were talking about domestic violence on, on this show on International Women's Day on March 8th. If you missed that roundtable. Um, you know, Candace Ryan, who sat right here next to me at the table talking about her personal, her lived experience as a survivor of domestic violence. And it's reiterated, you know, Jan Reimer, former Edmonton mayor, sitting on the other end of the table. She's with the Alberta Council of Women's Shelters right now. Uh, and, and we learned about the work being done at, at one shelter in particular, the Jessica Martell, uh, through their memorial foundation. Uh, Jessica, a, a victim of domestic violence, her life was stolen from her. Uh, by her partner, these calls are far too frequent, and we know that they're happening all the time. And on the policing side, you never know when one of those calls is going to be a dispute that is resolved or that at least for the time being is addressed, and you never know when it's going to go completely sideways with a tragic outcome, and that's the case today. And so uh, we offer what we can at this point, which feels inadequate, but our words of support and our deepest condolences to the surviving families and the colleagues of these two Edmonton police service members uh, killed in the line of duty early on this Thursday morning. The show is going to start officially in just a second. It's, it's, it's difficult. I know just as human beings to, to just then move on and talk about something else, our hearts are going to be heavy today. uh, And, uh, and of course our, our minds will somewhat be elsewhere, but, but we do have a plan today. Uh, We're going to be talking about the future of electric vehicles in Canada in just a second uh, with the Pembina Institute's Adam Thorne. The reason why today actually marks March 16th marks the closing date for submitting comments. The government of Canada is putting together uh, zero emissions vehicles regulations. And so we thought it might be a good time. This was first announced in December of last year. But today is the day that's been circled on everybody's calendar, including uh, the folks at the Pambada Institute, kind of a kind of a clean energy think tank. And we'll get into that, what they're hoping to see. They've got basically four recommendations, uh, what they think the future of electric vehicles or of EVs should look like in Canada. We're also going to talk to Joanna Chu, uh, who's done amazing work reporting. I mean, she's an internationally renowned expert on China, and we've been looking forward to, to chatting with her for quite some time. Uh, a senior journalist for the Toronto Star. Uh, you also may have read her book, China Unbound. Uh, she lives in Vancouver. She's going to be joining us. Uh, she's just back from a week away. Uh, but her reporting on this Chinese election meddling story has gone above and beyond what any other journalist in Canada is talking about, and she's unearthed some really fascinating storylines, including 
some Chinese Canadians in B.C. that say we've been warning about this for ages. Joanna talked to them and she's going to join us. That's coming up in about 25 minutes time. These conversations are presented by Real Talk sponsors like the team at California Closets that wants to remind you, you can start your space transformation with a free consultation at CaliforniaClosets.ca. Our family has worked personally with their design experts in past, and I can tell you they will come up with ideas you would have never hatched yourself. The efficiencies, the quality of the design, the transformational element of what California Closets can do starts with a free design consultation today on their website, californiaclosets.ca. If you're going to be heading out grocery shopping for the family anytime soon we want to recommend that if you are in one of the 16 alberta communities that has a freezing brothers that that you head there if for no other reason than to get your hands on their hot cross buns that's right they're back at freezing brothers from now until easter nobody does it like freezing brothers they're baked daily by real sourdough bakers using 100 alberta flour and don't forget as well one day only on March 17th, that's coming up tomorrow, St. Patrick's Day, Friesen Brothers is going to be running its traditional St. Patrick's Day meat sale. That means 20% off of fresh Alberta beef, Alberta pork, Alberta chicken, and a whole lot more, including Banja's Smokehouse products and Banja's Classic Deli Meats. That is a one-day-only sale. That's tomorrow. Assuming you're listening to this the day we're doing the show, it's March 17th, St. Patrick's Day at Friesen Brothers, Alberta grown and Alberta owned. If instead of... Your human family members, you're looking to feed your pups. Can we recommend Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food? This is what we feed our dogs. We've been feeding Moses and Monroe Grand Dog Essentials for years, long before we were doing business with them in an official capacity. The reason why we're so proud to partner with Grand Dog Essentials, I, my wife Carrie, we've seen the health Benefits reflected in both pups. We have an, a boxer, 10 and a half years old, looks unbelievable right now. And our three-year-old lab, stunning. And a big part of this is the quality raw food from Grand Dog Essentials. For the month of March, their Doggy Moggy Chicken Raw Pet Food, the 40-pound box is on sale for $73.50 a box. You use the discount code MARCH2023 at checkout to receive your savings. That's March. 2023 for the Doggy Moggy Chicken Raw Pet Food Box at granddog.ca delivered to your door in Calgary, Edmonton, and Central Alberta. And a quick shout out as we're about to talk technology and innovation, uh, the team at Apex Automation is looking to hire Canada's best professional engineers and most talented professionals working in the field of automation. You can check out online right now at apexautomation.ca some of the innovative products that they're working on. Uh, This includes atmospheric and environmental monitoring, process control, and safety. If that's something that is in your wheelhouse, Apex Automation's leading in that regard. What about radar and sensors in environments? Industrial-grade radar sensors enabling the automation of industrial sites around the world now used in pioneering autonomous vehicle research. This is exactly what we're about to get into. What about control stations and and cybersecurity? And uh, the list goes on. I mean, the opportunities are endless at Apex Automation where they put people ahead of profits. It's probably one of the reasons why they're the fastest growing automation firm in the country. You can check out the careers link today. If you're looking to shake it up, go somewhere where you're actually going to realize your potential. Apex Automation. 
as mentioned, today is the closing date uh, for Canadians, including organizations and agencies, lobby groups and others that will be attempting to, well, influence the government of Canada's proposed zero emissions vehicle regulations. That includes the Pembina Institute. Uh, grateful that Adam Thorne, a manager there, is able to, uh, to join us. Transportation director with Pembina Institute is Adam making his Real Talk debut. This has been a big day. You've had March 16th, I guess, uh, circled on the calendar because it, it, it's another stepping stone toward the future of EVs in, in Canada. Where's your head at right now? Well, we're preparing our submission and we hope to have it done by the end of today. Uh, and we really want to support the government of Canada as it moves forward with this zero emission vehicle mandate. So this is, uh, I guess, is it fair to ask, Adam, really, people today are going to be watching this story and going, this is maybe a bit of a peek into what the future of EVs looks like in Canada. Why is this this framework, uh, the zero emissions vehicles regulations, so significant? It's going to meet a number of really important goals in Canada. So first of all, of course, it's going to help us meet our emissions goals. Canada has made ambitious, uh, set ambitious targets to reduce our overall emissions um, to below to 40% below 2005 levels by 2030. And of course, to be net zero by 2050. Uh, this is going to help that goal, or in fact, it's essential to that goal. Transportation equals about 25% of emissions in Canada today. On-road transportation accounts for about 85% of those 25% emissions. And passenger vehicles, that is those light-duty vehicles that this mandate is speaking to, uh, makes up more than half of that right now. So in order to, for Canada to meet those really ambitious targets, this is an absolutely essential uh, policy to be put in place. It has additional benefit. Oh, I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, there's additional benefits as, as well. Uh, health benefits, for example, uh, some estimates suggest it'll reduce or avoid 11,000 premature deaths in Canada uh, and save our healthcare system as much as $90 billion. It's good for consumers. It's going to help lower energy costs. Uh, estimates of a Chevy Bolt traveling over a year, over 20,000 kilometers a year in the city of Vancouver, uh, estimated to cost about $478, a similar internal combustion engine vehicle, um, well over $3,000. And so there's real savings here for Canadians. Adam, where do you get, uh, with regards to maybe whether it's it's polling that's done by Pambina or maybe this is, this is anecdotal observations that you've made, maybe this is just scuttlebutt around the office, where do you get a sense of, you know, where Canadians are at? Where's the average consumer at? Uh, where's uptake and interest levels at right now? How many, how many people out of 10 that are in the new vehicle market or that are shopping today, how many of those 10 people are considering seriously an EV. Surveys indicate that over 60% of Canadians are supportive of the idea of buying an EV. However, we know that uptake is relatively low at this point. So last year, it was about 7% in Canada. That is 7% of uh, vehicles sold were EVs, much higher uh, in some provinces, BC and Quebec, for example, BC, it was 15%. Both of those provinces have a mandate. Um, which has meant that there is more vehicles available for them to purchase. So two considerations, I think, are, are, are sort of really impeding the uptake of these vehicles. One, of course, is cost and, and availability, really. Um, they are more expensive right now than internal combustion engines. Now, some estimates by Bloomberg and others suggest that that is going to level off by 2025 or 2026. Uh, in the meantime, of course, we do have uh, price incentives. So, for example, in uh, the federal government offers $5,000 for a purchase incentive for these vehicles. Uh, we think that this mandate is going to help that. You know, we know uh, with economies of scale that the more of these vehicles that are produced, 
that price is going to come down. So we think this is a really important policy to help uh, bring that cost down to levels where more and more Canadians are going to be able to consider these. Um, we also know that charging is one key consideration. Can you charge these vehicles? Um, we think that about 70% of charging will occur at home. And so for those 70% of Canadians who live in their own single family home, um, that is a relatively easy investment. We know for other parts of the country, though, for example, remote communities where public charging may not be available or those who are living in multi-unit residential buildings, this is going to be a bigger challenge. Again, we think the mandate can help this. A mandate creates market certainty, which means that those who want to invest in uh, charging infrastructure, whether it's you know putting in an existing building or public infrastructure, really know that those uh, vehicles are going to be on the road and, and that's going to be a, an effective investment. Adam, one of the things I, I think that's going to be at play here and one of the things that a lot of Canadians, in particular, I think those in Ontario, correct me if I'm wrong, but there are big employment implications, there are big job implications here as part of this conversation as well, right? Absolutely. This can be a real boon for Canada's employment and, and, and manufacturing generally. Uh, Canada has real advantages when it comes to the EV manufacturing. We uh, have a lot of these minerals that are really crucial to produce these vehicles available in Canada. So there are opportunities here uh, for Canada to become really a world leader in producing these vehicles. We've seen this with the Volkswagen's recent announcement of creating a battery plant in Ontario. This is going to translate to real jobs for Canadians and, and a growth in our manufacturing industry and all of the sort of good things that follow from that. So, you know, we talk about these, you know, in particular, the the, the proposed sales mandate targets and, and, and some of this may be government mandated. And then some of this is, is just like the free market at work. Right. I mean, a lot of automakers have, have gotten ahead of this and. and I guess, regardless of what governments are saying or regardless of what uh, policies might be in some of the nations where they're selling their vehicles, they're saying this is what's best for our business. And a lot of these targets are pretty ambitious. If you consider we're, you know, seven years away from 2030, we're two years away from 2025. I mean, what does the future look like in, in two to five to 10 years from now? What do you think? That's a good question. Um, a couple of things that I can say. One is that prices for these vehicles will begin to fall. They'll be, become more and more attainable for more Canadians. This is incredibly important to see the rollout of these vehicles. You're absolutely right. Lots of manufacturers have already set their own internal targets that are quite similar to this. And, and so I think they recognize that there's a demand out there for these vehicles and they're already moving forward for that. We think the availability of models will also begin to rise. Uh, there's a real challenge, even if you do want a, a, an EV in Canada in finding one of those vehicles. And this mandate is going to help create that. It creates certainty for the manufacturers, where for them to sort of understand we need to be selling X amount of vehicles by X year really allows them to plan. And of course, it allows the consumer uh, to plan as well. And, and so we think both prices will fall and the availability of these vehicles will rise. Has has Canada, I mean, when you look at the job losses, they're they're really kind of staggering over the past 20 years or so. And these are numbers that your team has provided to us. Uh, almost 50,000 jobs, 47,000 jobs lost. Uh, GDP in the auto sector declining more than 30%. Uh, over the same period, Canada's motor vehicle production dropped uh, almost in half from 2.5 million vehicles, which is about 5% of vehicles manufactured around the world, to 1.4 million, which is lower than two percent how much of that is on canada how much of that is, is on the auto industry in canada and how much of that is external factors i guess what i'm asking you is, is how much can canada by way of policies like what's being developed here this framework the conversation we're having how much can canada actually influence some of these numbers 
I think Canada has a real opportunity here. As I said, you know, Canada can be a leader in this area. We have natural advantages. We have uh, the minerals that are going to be necessary to produce these vehicles. We have clean energy. We have an abundance of clean energy opportunities in Canada. Um, these are things that manufacturers want and need. Uh, they need to be able to show that they're reducing uh, the carbon footprint of their manufacturing and Canada offers these kinds of opportunities. And so, you know, this sort of transition that is occurring globally, uh, I think really opens up opportunities for the Canadian government. And I think they've capitalized on these. I think the mandate is going to help by creating the demand for these vehicles. You know, most vehicles are sold uh, close to where they are produced. And so if we can create that demand for these type of EV vehicles in Canada, I think we have a real opportunity to capitalize on that investment that's moving toward this sector. Adam, can we can we can we wrap by talking a bit about stigma? Um, you know, you're talking to me in Alberta, and you know that that for for a lot of people, any conversation around climate initiatives, uh, whether we're talking about carbon pricing or EVs or whatever else, is oftentimes spun by industry as an attack on Alberta's economy or as an attack on the economic engine of Canada. When it comes to stigma. Or some of the barriers that exist uh, in the context of EVs in particular, how important are things like electric pickup trucks? How important are things like electric heavy equipment or heavy machinery to be utilized in industrial contexts? Do those work to change people's minds? Can I get a candid comment on that from you? I think it does. I think can Canadians, like any other consumers, you know, they want the vehicles that they uh, um, that are useful in their lives. And I think having EV pickup trucks, having uh, heavy and uh, uh, medium and heavy duty vehicles, which is one of the areas that we're putting a lot of work into uh, into thinking how to uh, you know eliminate the carbon in within that that uh, sector of transportation as well. Um, I think seeing these vehicles, having these vehicles accessible and having them meet their daily needs is incredibly important to overcome that stigma. Um, you know, we're talking about a long term transition here. Um, so the targets within the mandate are 60 percent EVs by 2030, 100 percent by 2035. That certainly doesn't mean that all of the vehicles on the road will be electric by those points. Uh, our estimates, and these are just estimates, suggest that maybe 40% of vehicles will be EVs by 2035. And so that means that there's certainly still going to be a lot of internal combustion engine vehicles out there. And so this is really about providing choice, making sure that there are models available and, and a diversity of models available uh, so that consumers can make their own decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm looking at this uh, video tour of that Mercedes uh, SUV, and I, I, th I think I've picked mine. I just don't know how I'm going to pay for it, but that's unbelievable. <laughs> if I know anything, Adam, about every time we talk about EVs here, we're going to get an email from someone, and, and, and I know it'll be sent in good faith, but, but they're going to be saying there's no way the grid... There's no way our electricity grid, and look at you, you're already ready to go on this question. <laughs> this will be my last to you. I know everybody wants to talk to you today, but there's no way they're going to say that the grid can handle this uptick in demand once everybody starts looking to charge their vehicles at home. How do you, as they say in sales, how do you answer that objection? Uh, it's a good question. Um, you know, there's lots of concern uh, about our grid, uh, about the generation of clean electricity. Um, this represents uh, not, I think, a challenge for, for, for the grid, but really an opportunity, right? Every person who converts to a, an EV vehicle is a new customer when it comes to the provision of electricity. So if you're a utility, um, I think they're looking at this as not a challenge, but as an opportunity. 
there will be challenges moving forward, right? We do need to invest in our infrastructure. We've known that for a long time. And as population grows, uh, it's only going to become more important to do so. And so, for example, the Pemina Institute is advocating very strongly uh, for the government to pass a clean uh, electricity regulation. Um, we know these policies will be really important, but we're also really confident that that infrastructure will be there uh, in order to meet this need. All right. People can check out more, uh, including a feature on a roadmap for Alberta's new energy economy. Interesting stuff at Pembina.org. Uh, that's where Adam Thorne is transportation director joining us live on this Thursday morning. Thanks for doing this, Adam. Nice to talk to you. You as well. Thank you so much. Yeah, you got it. Did you uh, have a chance, Johnny, as we're taking a look? This is for the, for the YouTube audience, not yeah. those on the podcast. You, you can use your imagination if you're listening on the podcast, but we were showing a whole bunch of new EVs. They look The new incredible. Chevy truck, the Cadillac, yeah. the and uh, I know, Kia, oh, they're the beautiful. Benzo. Yeah, it's so much more than Tesla nowadays, and I think people are thinking, oh, they're so expensive, but you know, the, the, the feeling is that they last a whole lot longer. But yeah, I was looking up stats while we were talking about this and just... You know, the ch- people are asking about, you know, do we have enough charging stations? It's yeah. it, definitely Alberta, Edmonton in general is way behind. You've got about 50 stations in Montreal, 50 in Toronto, 70 in Vancouver, six in Edmonton. So you can okay. see we're still kind of fighting the power there. Yeah. Uh, and then people also talking about battery electric vehicles like batteries have have, you know, a chance of fire. You know, we heard about uh, some bikes. Last summer, with the extreme heat, uh, when I was in Kelowna, actually, there was a few fires with the, the Lime scooters. Uh, but uh, I just looked up the stats. So battery electric vehicles have just a 0.03% chance of igniting compared to internal combustion engines, which have about a 1.5% chance. So, you know. Interesting. Sounds like uh, but, but the, but the, times <laughs> the naysayers are, the times are kind they of are wrong. changing. Yeah. You know, like I've, I've, I would say, and this is just anecdotal. Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, several of my friends drive EVs. Some of them are Teslas, but but a lot of others like the the Audi, the e-tron is like mm-hmm. stunningly beautiful. Mm-hmm. I mean, but but everyone makes, um, you know, there still are things that, you know, there, there are conveniences with with you know internal combustion engines, obviously that that EVs don't have, and then there are obviously huge benefits to having EVs, yeah, um, as opposed to you know the the, the gas uh, powered vehicles. So, but uh, when you look at the EVs, the main thing, the main cost for my vehicles, all of them, has always been maintenance and upkeep, right? Mm-hmm. Oil changes. You know, uh, replacing parts, things like this. And a lot of that goes way down with EVs because you don't have internal combustion. You don't have all these oils and things running. Well, you do still, but not not as much, right? You don't have all these parts that need to be replaced so much. So... I get the feeling everyone says that these things, especially the Mercedes you were looking at. Oh, my gosh. It's not so a cheap beautiful. Vehicle. It's so beautiful. But I mean, how long does a car last right now? 20 years? 20, 25? If I don't know how really many people are driving lucky. cars for 20 years. Well, yeah. not, well some. I, I'm saying like if you went to the extreme, sure. like, I, I see the average here is like 12. But I'm asking, you know, I I, and my questions a lot of times are really entry level questions. I was driving in an EV just the other day with a friend. I'm like, tell me how this. First of all, the acceleration is wild. It's a little scary in some. It's like it's 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 Ferrari (laughs) fast uh, without the Ferrari. But but I was asking, I'm like, so you don't. And and I my questions are so dumb. But I'm like, I'm like, so you don't you don't change the oil. You don't like you don't have to swap out the, nope. the rear diff fluid. You don't have nope. to. And there's nothing. It's just all it's a completely complete. You have to completely change how you, how you wrap your mind around how yeah. vehicles are built. 
and how they work. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it is happening all around us. And I don't think that two or three or four years from now, it's going to be, you know, right now, if somebody gets an EV, you're like, oh, wow, I think in two or three or four years, people are going, yeah, whatever. It's just mm-hmm. another just another vehicle. Yeah, it's just another another cost. I'm sure there's fluids you have to use. There, there's always bearings and axles and things that need to be lubricated. I'm sure even in an EV, but it's far less. The maintenance is far less. Yeah. You know, so. uh, Lauren is watching right now. I happen to know Lauren personally. He's a retired Edmonton district fire chief. Uh, got lots of love for that guy. Good morning to you, buddy. He says the charging station, he says fire codes are going to have to change. Says the charging stations in homes will be uh, more numerous and problems will occur. Uh, meantime, Daniel, I mean, we're spending a lot of time talking about cars. Daniel says, I have an electric bike and it's incredible. Daniel, I rode my friends. Her name's Heather. She got an electric bike last summer. She let me take it around the block. These things are nuts. Have you ever ridden an electric bike? Mm-hmm. They just fly. You can set it on whatever speed setting you want. And My you're just- one buddy has like three Ooh. of them. He swears by them. Unbelievable. Just for getting around. And then he has one that has like the big wheels that he takes out in, yeah. the, in the dirt and the trails with But they're kids. even making things like fitness and getting outside. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just even the benefit of having fresh air accessible to a lot of people that otherwise might not be able to power a bike through a big, long ride through the city. Mm-hmm. Um, there's you, you, you talk to a million people that own these things, you'll get a million different stories about what they <laughs> love about them. By the way, I don't know if anybody would have noticed this. There was a subtle arty miss, and this is not confirmed. I'm just getting this in our live chat, which is why you got to tune into Real Talk Live on the Mixler live streaming audio app presented by California Closets or on YouTube because you get the stuff as it's happening. Artie Miss says there's an earthquake happening right now. She's reporting that, and I'm wondering if that's why. I don't know if it's true, and we're not saying that like towers are coming down in Edmonton. Some are saying that there are some tremors being reported near Peace River. I'm trusting the live chat here. We've not confirmed this, but I have. I wonder if people noticed subtly at the beginning of my interview here with Adam Thorne from Pemina. Did you notice my, so that's, yeah. my camera was we going saw the side shaking, to side? And that never happens, so we, we have a lot of... Uh, we share this building with a ton of people. Yeah. There's a shared workspace above us. Yeah. They usually don't get going till like 10 a.m. But they can't shake our walls. And I took off my headphones and I was like, are they moving furniture around? Because I know they're doing some remodeling up there. Yeah. I went over, I grabbed, I went to a different shot, grabbed the camera and kind of stabilized it. Took off my headphones. I couldn't hear. I don't think anyone's even up there yet. So I think... I think Artie may be right, and we may have had some small tremors here as well. Yeah, so so this is we're we're gonna fact check on the fly, and and Artie Miss, we can't tell you how much we appreciate things like this. Uh, Artie Miss is pointing us in the right direction. Says no, it's true. Says Doctor Darren Markland posted about it. <laughs> so he's a you know he's a he's a reputable. Uh, there you go. He's a reputable source. The uh, the ICU doc. He's been on the show uh, several times. Here it is. We're looking at the government. This is earthquake. I didn't even know this website exists. Uh, this is must be natural resources. It's earth. EarthquakesCanada.nrcan.gc.ca. Anyway, you can see it on my screen right now. This is the seismogram. Oh, there's viewer. the blip. Uh, and there it is. There's a, a blip. This is uh, looks like it was yeah right around when that interview was starting. It, it, it uh, look at that, John. That's fascinating stuff. So here you have it. Looks like we may have experienced a little bit of a tremor during that interview. Well, and that gosh, would I'd... be why the camera had been moving. I noticed you trying to, and I was wondering quietly to myself as I'm talking to Adam. What the hell is shaking our walls? This is a this is a bulletproof. That building. main camera is, is like bolted down. I it's know, never moved. An I inch. know, and uh, I'm glad because I didn't go upstairs and yeah start screaming at people. So. Uh, others of you <laughs> saying and, and Tracy reporting, yeah, four point eight on the scale confirmed in Peace River. So thank you uh, to what an engaged audience. I love you guys very much. 
Uh, Tony says we got a Ford Escape. It's 20 years old, and that stupid thing will not die. That's what I'm saying. She says, I need this to die so we could buy an EV or a hybrid. That's a great uh, advertisement there for Ford. And in Edmonton, I see a lot of 20-year-old cars driving around. Oh, sure. Like tons. Oh, yeah. But I did did look it up. The average is is around 12 to 15 years. Well, I grew up in a family. uh, I grew up in a family where you you get a reliable car and then you drive it till it dies. Yeah. Or you drive it till it doesn't drive it till it doesn't make sense to maintain it anymore. Yeah. Once you start getting the three four thousand dollar repair bills and the car is worth two grand, that's when you got to say goodbye. Yeah. But I'm always sentimental about these things. (laughs) I just got a new used vehicle and it's got about 140 clicks on it, and I'm like. I am driving this thing until it it buckles down and is at the side of the road and has to go to an auction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Joanna Chu going to be joining us in just a second. Okay, I wanted to let you know. I mean, all this talk about EVs. uh, Lauren pointing out that, you know, charging stations are going to have to be installed properly. It's a perfect time to remind you about Kubi Renewable Energy and not just because they're Western Canada's busiest and most trusted solar installer, but also because they do, you know, these Tesla power walls, these charging stations. This is right in Kubi's wheelhouse. As a matter of fact, you can check out the projects that they've worked on. These are residential solar energy projects in BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Northwest Territories. They're sending their team all over the place Uh, For residential solar power systems, of course, they're also doing commercial, industrial, agricultural. But you can learn more about their products and services by checking out, in particular, the drop-down menu. Look at this. Electric vehicle chargers. At kubienergy.ca, you deserve quality for your new car, and Kubi delivers. Imagine charging your EV at home overnight, waking up to a full charge every morning. Drastically improve your charge rate over the standard 120-volt outlet with a 240-volt level 2 charger. This can improve the charge speed by up to 10 times. You can get your quote, including for commercial EV chargers today at kubienergy.ca. Now, once you've gone solar with Kubi, you're going to want to join Park Power's Solar Club. Don't you love it when these sponsorships just work together to save you money to make your life easier? At parkpower.ca, you can go to their frequently asked questions, FAQ, and you can learn a little bit more about what that solar club entails. Basically, Park Power is going to pay you more for the excess energy, the excess electricity that your solar system is generating through those summer months, you're probably not going to get big payouts in November, December, January. Nobody's going to pretend like you are. But in June, July, August, oh yeah, baby, nobody's going to give you more money back than Park Power will. Certainly not going to be the big guys. Your friendly local utilities provider will knock up to $150 off your first bill from Park Power if you sign up with the bundling promo code Real Talk 23. That's Real Talk 23 at parkpower.ca to save up to $150 off your first bill. Hey, we speak of this building we're in. <laughs> hey, looks like we've survived an earthquake today. This building, this workspace transformed by the team at Complete Care Restoration. When we took over the space, we had a bit of a water leak. There was evidence of a water leak that we just could not have. Right? We've got electronics everywhere. This team came in. That's what they do. They sourced out the problem and they fixed it. If you find yourself in a nightmare scenario, fire damage, flood damage, maybe you've just discovered black mold at your property, your first call needs to be Complete Care Restoration. You can find them online at completecarerestoration.ca or give them a call 780-454-0776. 
There's been a lot of talk across the country and for good reason about this story around China's meddling, allegedly or otherwise, in Canadian election results. Joanna Chu has been leading this coverage, unearthing storylines nobody else is telling. Based out of Vancouver, she's a senior journalist for the Toronto Star and an internationally recognized authority on China. You may have read her book, her first, China Unbound. Joanna joining us from her home in Vancouver. Thank you so much for making time for us and a good morning to you. Hi, Ryan. Good morning. Yeah. Hey, hey before we go any further, I want to ask you about something that has nothing to do with China, but this was a scoop of yours, Lisa Laflamme and the Canadian Screen Awards. And I saw you yesterday clapping back at Adrian Arsenault and the producers of The National who were not crediting your work. This was a scoop that you had a few weeks ago. How did, how did this come across your radar? Lisa Laflamme uh, either nominating herself or having somebody else nominate her when CTV was continuing to treat her in disgraceful fashion. Yeah, I just thought it was funny the wording, the story that was out there, like it was kind of floating around the ether. <laughs> um, so I thought it was uh, helpful to clarify. Um, so I've been covering the Lisa Lafam story, which, as you know, you know, it surprised maybe me um, that it's people have been reading every development about her controversial uh, ouster from CTV News since uh, it happened. And she said it was a surprise to her. Um so, you know, uh, a couple sources pass on different versions of CDF's award nomination forms. So then it was pretty easy to see that they actually um, originally intended to nominate her because this was before uh, her replacement even started. So she was the only main anchor eligible for this award for them. So they were going to nominate her. But at the last uh, minute, I found out that executives decided to pull her name, not just only from the best anchor position, but also um, not even name her in in other programs um, that CDP was submitting. So she found out as well and decided to nominate herself and, and the judge at the academy um reviewed her work and uh you know made her one of the finalists yeah no kidding because she's been the best news anchor in canada with apologies to all the rest for the last 20 years uh it, it really is i mean it, it's one of these stories where you understand i mean this is a multi-billion dollar company this is a huge business and she's achieving at the highest level mm -hmm. but some of it kind of feels personal doesn't it? Yeah, who knows what went on behind the scenes. I hear, you know, the official line in CTV is that it was a business decision, but, you know, ratings were good. Um, her contract wasn't even up yet for another couple of years. So um, the Globe and Mail reported that there were some conversations about her hair color, letting her hair go gray during the pandemic. An executive pointed that out, but, you know, we still don't know why they decided to kick her out. And yeah. I think it really um, was interesting because it kicked off this conversation, not just in Canada, but worldwide about ageism and sexism in the workplace. How even when a woman really succeeds in her industry, she likely is facing issues that a man, a, a particularly a white man, just wouldn't have to in yeah. her career.
Yeah, I mean, like, we, like we, it's not like we've ever seen uh, male news anchors uh, rocking gray hair, right? Mm-hmm. Never, yeah. never, never seen that. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> the double standard is astounding. Uh, if people want to check out your reporting on it, you were first. It was a star exclusive back on February 23rd. Uh, Bell mm-hmm. Media wouldn't nominate Lisa LaFlamme for an award, so she did it herself. Uh, written and uploaded by uh, Joanna Chu, who joins us now live from Vancouver. Let's talk about this uh, story. Uh, Chinese interference or, or meddling in the election. There's, there's, there's the big picture. Did it happen? Uh, and that appears to be a, a addressed. And of course, now a former governor general, David Johnson, has been mm-hmm. appointed kind of as an envoy to look into this. But I, I want to get into some of the, the stories and the angles that you've uh, uncovered because they've been fascinating. Generally speaking, before we get into some of the nuance and before we get into some of the people, the, the really remarkable stories that you've been telling, where are you at? right now with the story you know we're asking in promoting this interview with you we're asking people can you trust canada's election results based on what you're seeing based on the conversations you're having the evidence in front of you or in front of canadians at this point do you personally trust canada's election results from the previous few federal elections yeah so in case you know your viewers haven't quite been following so closely um this all uh, blew up recently because the Global and the Globe and Mail uh, released these details of these secret documents from CSIS, uh, saying that it it did, despite agency did warn uh, top liberals that there was meddling in previous elections. Um, you know, certain Chinese, uh, Canadian, uh, and other Canadian candidates uh, may have received. Um, uh, undeclared donations that were closely linked to the Chinese government. So then this has raised uh, questions about the legitimacy of uh, some of the election results. And, you know, Ottawa has said that it had looked into it and did not find that this meddling from the Chinese government, which is now not really disputed, the fact of the meddling and the efforts uh, did not actually um, make a difference in the results themselves. Um, but it has, like, you know, my angle that I have been trying to point out and hammer on about is that uh, people have been warning about these activities for decades, actually, from the early 90s. My research, you know, part of the reason for writing my book is to give this context that it's not just happening in Canada, but Beijing has this really, really huge dedicated agency with offices all over the world and its job is to try to influence democracies and societies around the world and it's particularly interested in places like Canada because that's where many uh, Chinese immigrants fled to they fled political persecution to places like Canada that welcomed them and the Chinese government was worried that with these people who were uh, more pro-democratic because they fled uh, a authoritarian uh, system in China that they would pose this kind of outside um, oppositional force. So they put particularly more resources into trying to try to control immigrants of Chinese descent in places like Canada, Australia, US, UK. So for my book, I actually traveled to these places to try to uh, track the development of this meddling. And Canada and Australia, I found, were two countries where there had been the most brazen uh, attempts uh, from Beijing that we've seen. And uh, like my article you mentioned points out, um, Chinese Canadians who are some now in their 70s are a bit frustrated that it took these kind of secret spy documents like, to kind of like 
get mainstream attention because they've been testifying to parliament about what they've been observing like as eyewitnesses um, for decades. Uh, we're referencing your piece uh, uh, updated March 7th. People can read it at the star.com. Uh, the headline reads Chinese interference in Canada. Chinese Canadians say they reported it for years and were ignored. Um, can you talk to us about some of these conversations? It's it's really interesting. I mean, people talking about like trespassers in their backyards and all all kinds of things. It sounds like it's out of a movie. Yeah, I mean, the, the name of this organization in China is called the United Front Work Department. It sounds like the stuff of spy novels, but uh, I really try to demystify this because um, it's it's very real and it's happening and there's been a lot of documentation. There's been other books and reports coming out from Canadian researchers and international ones that I, some of them I linked to in the piece. Um, and including things that pretty much mirror what we see in the CSIS reports that were leaked, um, like these cash donations, like um, kind of busing the consulate or as proxies busing people into political candidate nomination stations to try to push the candidate that they want. Uh, things like um, donations and also uh, protests, like encouraging and pressuring certain people to protest for issues um, that uh, support Beijing's line. So during the Meng Wanzhou trial in Vancouver, it was funny to see there were a couple students, um, I think they were white or they didn't know what they were doing, but they were putting up signs saying free Meng Wanzhou, did not who know who Meng Wanzhou was, but then they later told journalists that they were paid to be there and put up these signs. Um, so these things have been documented piecemeal for the years. And another nefarious bit of it that I don't think we've discuss as much in um, Ottawa circles is that a big part of it is trying to use the leverage uh, family members, friends of people uh, living in Canada. Uh, and I found not just Chinese immigrants. So, but if say you're a researcher in Australia, you've been traveling to and working on China issues for a while, you have close friends in China. Um, Beijing uses that connection to try to silence you. Um, they try to silence a major consultant, John Garneau, for the Australian government because he was helping the Australian government come up with counter foreign interference laws. Um, they actually detained his friend and threatened his friend, his Chinese uh, Australian friend. Um, so using people, um, so a source told me kind of taking hijacking, taking hostage family members and friends back in China to try to control um, influential people overseas, including here in Canada. It's happened a lot. Uh, the prime minister here, and I know that we were talking a little bit yesterday about the opposition leader, about Pierre Polyev, obviously torquing the potential of this mm -hmm. uh, as yeah. as politicians do. Uh, you also, I mean, you might even suggest that you might not blame him because this seems to be a pretty plum opportunity uh, to go at this prime minister and to go at this liberal party to sort of try to create these vulnerabilities. And the assertion is, and I'll be lazy and just really generally speak, and then you're the expert. Uh, maybe you can tell me where I'm way off base and, and maybe where we're on to something. The assertion being that the Trudeau family has had close ties to, to China for many decades, starting with Canada's former prime minister, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, and moving through to Justin Trudeau. The, the allegation being that this has not been taken seriously, that the prime minister is re refusing to, to testify in front of commons committee 
And again, on that side, when, when prime ministers have been briefed with sensitive intelligence and security documents, they can't take them public. So it, it's a bit of a of a red yeah. herring there. But the idea being that the prime minister not making himself available, not making his chief of staff, Katie Telford, available. And then yesterday, uh, the announcement that the prime minister has appointed former Governor General David Johnston to uh, to probe claims of election interference. Everybody's saying, well, he sits on the Trudeau Foundation. He's a family friend of the Trudeaus. Mm-hmm. This is an inappropriate appointment can we get into the politics of this and, mm-hmm. and 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 the valid points perhaps that the conservatives may have maybe what might not be and maybe maybe what's not the best faith argument what are you seeing mm-hmm. with your expertise yeah well it's true that um pierre trudeau he was a canadian prime minister who reopened uh canada china relations after a period uh, of tumultuousness in China, where they pretty much, you know, was close to what North Korea is right now, almost like a hermit kingdom in kind of the early days of the CCP uh, takeover in China, you know, Chairman Mao and all that. Um, and Pierre Trudeau, he um, visited China um, as a as a youth and then later um, uh, opened up relations with with China, with Canada. So some say that perhaps uh, the younger Trudeau kind of wanted to follow this legacy. Uh, I wasn't living in Beijing when Trudeau and senior cabinet members visited trying to strike a free trade deal. Um, but actually, it was quite embarrassing because um, as part of a free trade deal, Canada wanted certain uh, labor protections, human rights protections, and the Chinese side was basically laughing. It's like, why would we care enough about um, this deal to you know, meet your demands? And they kind of left away with nothing. Mm. Um, but it was part of a trend in Canada and not other Western countries where, sure, they cared about human rights in China, but they cared basically about um, business more. Um, and they kind of use um, kind of to justify really pursuing trade deals and business ties with China. They said that just by exposure, kind of people to people exchanges through business ties and trade, um, China's uh, human rights situation would just gradually improve just from mere contact with like the democratic West, you know, Bill Clinton made speeches like that. Um, Germany was a big proponent. So they kind of try to justify um, really prioritizing business issues through, oh, you know, the more we're close, the more China will see that it's good to be democratic and good to protect civil liberties. Mm. Um, and definitely this was some lines that uh, the Canadian um, administrations. And it's important to point out that this kind of attitude existed under Stephen Harper. Um, these kind of unheeded warnings from Chinese Canadians testifying to parliament, it happened when the conservatives were in power in Canada. So I don't think it's a liberal party issue. This has been going on again for decades. Well, Joanna, I'm um, so glad. Yeah. I can't tell you how grateful I am for your expertise on this, because this is something that I, I mean, I, I just noticed when you, when you hear about election meddling or election interference, whether it's in the U.S. or Canada or wherever, and or in, in the U.K., for I mean, you know, it happens everywhere, probably, right, mm-hmm. uh, or most places. But But we assume that the end game is to install a certain party into power or to prevent a certain party from achieving mm-hmm. power, right? So the idea being that, you know, Harper didn't take this seriously uh, or the Chinese, uh, you know, Beijing meddling here because they wanted the conservatives in power or the liberals not taking this seriously or Justin Trudeau ignoring this because it's favorable to the liberals. But what I'm picking up from you 
is that the end game might have nothing to do or probably has nothing to do with which party forms government. Yeah, um, well, in this last election, I think Aaron O'Toole was quite different from Harper's uh, platform because his platform on China was seen as more tough and hawkish. Um, so we saw on uh, social media here in Canada, especially in Chinese language, targeting um, Chinese Canadians, um, a lot of misinformation and smear campaigns against Aaron O'Toole and some conservatives um, here in Canada. So I think that was kind of different because um, Aaron O'Toole's platform was seen as uh, tougher than the liberals on China. So I think there's some, you know, legitimacy in that, um, according to the CSIS intelligence, China kind of slightly preferred the liberals, <laughs> but they didn't want the liberals to have a majority. They wanted a minority because they liked it when, uh, you know, Western politicians fight with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting how that happens. But it's also important to note that um, it's not just China who's interested in meddling with elections. Like we know about Russia and the U.S., what sure. Russia <laughs> tried in the U.S. Um, and uh, CSIS sources tell me that also Saudi Arabia, Iran, India, they, they have investigations into these countries um, and alleged uh, interference in Canada. So it's not just a China issue. So yeah. personally, as someone who's been looking into this and worried about if it's China being the top meddler today, could it be India next? Um, I think talking to experts, if there's some sort of solution or regulations in place, it really has to apply to all countries across the board so that, you know, we're less vulnerable um, as, you know, geopolitics. Shift. Yeah. I mean, that, this is kind of the, the spirit of my comments yesterday is, is, is you know, and, and I wasn't comparing as a matter of fact, I tried to be careful to not compare, you know, pair, Poliev, who to a certain degree is correct uh, when, when he says, you know, Canadians, you know, Justin Trudeau has planted these seeds of doubt. I don't know if Trudeau's planted them, but but it's happening. And there are Canadians asking valid questions around not just validity of election results, but moving forward, the strength of our democracy mm-hmm. and, and Canada's yeah. ability to protect the democratic process. Uh, but you have to think, I mean, you know, if I can say opponents, you know, whether you want to it, it's China or Russia or, or Iran or whomever. Looking at that stolen election assertion uh, from Donald Trump leading up to January 6th and the attack on the Capitol, I mean, that's all you need to see. I, w- I would imagine that would that was just a perfect scenario to see, mm-hmm. you know, what appeared to be democracy. I won't say falling apart. That, that's a little melodramatic, but but certainly democracy threatened and instability on home soil in Washington, D.C., when you're talking about end games, that's a pretty good mm-hmm. one if you'd like to see the United States falter. Yeah, um, definitely. I see the news, the daily news in China, and the first segment of the world news is how the rest of the world democracies are in chaos. Um, you know, the capital riots were really extensively covered in China. And I think it actually, like Beijing has some valid uh, perspectives when it comes to flaws in democracies, um, because there are many flaws. And um, there's also a lack of in-depth understanding of what's happening around the world. Um, Ideas that it is racist, which Trudeau and others have said to look into these issues. Um, There might be a lack of awareness that this is actually uh, almost the same language that Beijing uses to try to deflect and avoid 
scrutiny for their actions. Um, so looking structurally, there's really little training uh, for all levels of government and police in Canada and around the world to deal with these issues from China, Russia, and elsewhere. Um, we're really like ill-equipped, especially in this age where this harassment and coercion of people around the world can take place so easily over the internet, uh, over phone calls. Um, you know, I have heard of Chinese agents show up at people's doors in Canada. Um, the uh, Poco, Poco mayor has talked about how dozens of people in his constituency have been harassed, uh, sometimes in person, like people knocking at your door, like, why did you show up to a Hong Kong democracy protest? Mm. We're watch watching you. And this has happened. And, you know, politicians and others have been talking about it. Um, but as far as I know, um, police aren't trained, they don't have the legal tools to basically investigate. Um, CSIS can gather intelligence and, and warn senior levels of government that do have security clearance, but um, I think the conversation that happens next is capacity, like how do we train more people to respond and how can we respond uh, when these threats, um, the person kind of being taken hostage to try to control um, Canadians' actions is living in China. Um, the danger, the physical danger might be happening in China, but the effect on our uh, politics and society is here in Canada. How do you deal with that? It's, it's a tricky issue. Yeah, certainly is. Tara, Tara Lynn's watching us live uh, in our YouTube chat. She says the story about the harassment of Chinese Canadians is beyond concerning. She says it just feels like the election interference is just a branch off of a much mm -hmm. bigger issue, which is kind of the point that you're reiterating yeah. here. And, and just to make one more point, sometimes Chinese government uh, efforts and targets are kind of not that sophisticated. Uh, I think there's kind of like this patriarchal attitude that if you have any kind of Chinese blood, you're more likely to be pro-China. Um, so I've talked to Canadian politicians of Chinese heritage who have ended up on these kind of endorsement lists from um, Chinese consulate supporters and saying that they have no connection with these groups and they don't know why they're among the politicians that uh, the United Front wants in office. Um, they suspect it's just because their names sound Chinese, so maybe they'll be more pro-China. So there's also the nuance that the people who are being supported by the Chinese state might not want that support. Um, so, and, and they worry that their reputations will be harmed because of this attention that they don't want. So it, it's, it's very tricky. Well, we've been talking to Joanna Chu, uh, internationally renowned expert on China and, and easily, uh, in my mind, uh, doing some of the most fascinating reporting uh, in the bigger context of this story because you've been working this beat, so to speak. I mean, you literally wrote the book on it. You've been working this beat for years, and it gives you a depth of knowledge and understanding that surpasses what, what most other journalists in, in Canada are operating with. Well, Let me ask you. Go ahead. Yeah. I think I guess I lived in China and yeah. I lived in China working not for Canadian media because those opportunities don't exist, but for other countries media. And that's a problem. We now have no Canadian journalists in mainland China. It's hard to get that uh, broader perspective when you're trying to report from Canada uh, like I'm trying to do now. But at least I have my background of having, you know, lived in Beijing, Hong Kong. Um, yeah, I, I'm concerned that, um, but it, China is kicking out journalists, not letting them in. And also our media institutions don't have the money yeah. to, to fund foreign bureaus. And our understanding, not just of China, but 
all over the world is just in decline. And to me, that makes us more vulnerable to um, interference and all of these bad actors from um, foreign states because we don't have people with the language and cultural and life experience living around the world, working around the world. So it's, I'm it's so hard. glad you mentioned that. And this is like a common thread. It, it, it feels like a punch in the gut. A couple times a week we point out, and, and in different contexts, uh, how, how and I don't ever want to say journalism dying on the vine, but the models are drastically changing. And like you talked about, that includes funding and investment in storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really is a crisis for the general public. It is, it, it's a crisis of security. It's a crisis of confidence in institutions. Uh, you know, the, the fourth the state, so to speak, has played such a, a, an important and integral role in accountability um, and, and, in, and in reporting these types of stories. If mm-hmm. you have a second, can can we ask you about your time working in China as a journalist, as a storyteller? Were you were you uh, did you experience attempted intimidation? Was how, how different was it uh, for you there in that context of, of, you know, I don't want to say attacks on journalists, but trying to make mm-hmm. certainly their lives difficult? Yeah, I left in 2018 before things got even worse, Um, before like physical attacks on foreign journalists was pretty infrequent. But, you know, after I left, it became pretty commonplace, especially if you were more visible as a foreign journalist with a camera crew, Um, you know, you'd get punched. And um, uh, Canadian uh, University of Toronto professor Lynette Ong has talked about how China uses a system of employing non-state actors, basically non-police who get paid to rough people up in villages against journalists. Um, And this was pretty common in China. And um, I had to be extra careful because um, I'm from Hong Kong, so I look Chinese. So I don't even have that kind of protection of being seen as a foreigner, a foreign journalist. I always had to carry my Canadian passport around in case I were detained. Um, but so worrying that China treats anyone of Chinese descent like they're Chinese. So um, right now, China has Chinese-Australian journalists in detention. Um, they, they seem to not really care about what your passport is. So it is a not a very safe place to report, especially in the last few years. It's just gotten worse. Um, and that's, that's really sad because I think China's shooting itself in the foot because the people who are more likely to have more nuance and uh, empathy and understanding of different Chinese perspectives is people who get to live in China. Uh, but instead, they're kind of terrorizing, kicking them out, um, threatening their families, sometimes detaining foreign journalists' children separately to their parents to try to really, really like terrorize them and basically force them out. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not great. (laughs) I'm glad for the experience and I left before things got worse, but right now, like as important it is to have eyes on the ground bare, um, if you're like, especially like a young journalist coming up to me, wanting advice to get to China, I don't think I would in good conscience, um, be like, go for it because there's a lot of risk right now. And the people who are there, we really need to figure out who they are, um, and listen and follow their reporting because it's a small group right now doing really important work. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your your candor and just calling it how it is. And and as mentioned, your depth of experience is is virtually unparalleled in Canada. And we're really grateful that you've uh, given us your time into overtime, as a matter of fact, <laughs> longer than we asked you for. I know you've got a lot on your plate today, Joanna. So we'll say thank you. People can uh, join us in subscribing to The Star if they don't already. Uh, they can read your work, of course, at The Star online and they can follow you on Twitter at 
Joanna Chu. We'll link to all of that in the show notes on both YouTube and on our podcast. Uh, have a great rest of your weekend and keep up the amazing work, Joanna. We really mean it. Big fans of what you're doing. Oh, thank you. Thanks for your amazing work and making these stories, you know, more understandable and lively. <laughs> you got it. You got it. That's Joanna Chu of the Toronto Star. Uh, again, you, you can read her work online. Isn't it, this is the whole point, and I like what she says about that, is what, what our show does and what we endeavor to do is be able to do more long-form storytelling, to get into it and say, hey, we're going to spend 20 minutes or a half hour digging into a story where we feel like the average Canadian knows a couple talking points based on what they've seen on like Twitter or TikTok. Follow us on TikTok. Mm-hmm. But bigger picture, when you ask the question, what does this mean? Yeah. Right. What are the implications for us, for our country, for our families? What does this mean for the future of Canadian elections? What does this mean for the security of Chinese Canadians on the West Coast or across the country? And that's why I'm so grateful for that type of interview. And I like how she touched on like everyone thinks, oh, if Russia and China is involved in elections that they want to, like you said, install some. It's not always about that. Sometimes it's just to cause a bit of chaos yeah, to get people fighting and look at look at the left and the right. We're fighting more than ever. Yeah. And uh, yeah, even when 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 all that stuff was going on with Russia during the elections in the States, I was like, why is no one kind of equating China into this as well? Like China, Beijing, that's a monster. If you look at the top five places in the world, tech hubs, everyone always thinks Silicon Valley, of course, in the States, which is where the most app developers, the most things we use in our everyday life involved in tech usually get developed and pushed Mm. out into the world, the most success. But Beijing, like early stage funding for tech is like triple what it is in Beijing than Mm. what it is in San Francisco. It's an absolute like tech giant, right? Uh, We've got uh, comments here on on our live chat, which really appreciate seeing Tara Lynn, for example, says Joanna Chu, I'm adding her to the list of incredible guest journalists on the show. I want to hear from the people who are not only in the know, but who have the inner conviction to share it in the way that they do, says her book is on my list. Tara Lynn, happy to hear it. Of course, Joanna's book, China Unbound, A New World Disorder. And we encourage you to pick that up wherever it is that you buy good books. Mm-hmm. Can I say, I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of like, you know, we had a busy morning here. We did have a busy morning. And uh, and that started with if, if you're just joining us, if you're just tuning in uh, horrific news out of our home city of Edmonton this morning, two police officers shot and killed uh, responding to a domestic call. Uh, We don't have a lot of details at this point. Obviously, our hearts are heavy today. Um, I'm thinking of friends uh, that work with the Edmonton Police Service. I think of families, uh, bereaved families of officers that have been killed uh, in the line of duty in past. And I've just received this note uh, from an Edmonton firefighter. I won't identify them, uh, but just letting me know. He says, Jespo, those Baywood apartments, this is where we believe uh, this happened this morning. It's where the heaviest police presence is right now. This is, if you're local, this is uh, right around 132nd Street, right around 114th Avenue. We're certainly not sending you there. Uh, keep your distance. It's where the investigation continues at this time. Uh, this firefighter says those Baywood apartments, I've dreaded going to calls there for years. Uh, says, I always figured that something tragic would happen in there. Those apartments remind me of the apartments in The Wire. Uh, I've been to overdoses, stabbings, and fires in there. What a sad and awful day. Uh, says this firefighter, the story will come out later today. It's even worse than it sounds. 
that from an Edmonton firefighter. Um, so that's what we have at this point. We won't speculate. Obviously, it's irresponsible. Um, but uh, no. to say the very least, our hearts are heavy and our thoughts are with the, the Edmonton Police Service family and the families, uh, the friends, the extended circles. Tragedy like this ripples uh, further than you can believe. Some of you in the live chat today when we opened and, and for some of you, you may have been hearing about it. If you're streaming this live in the morning, you maybe heard about the shooting for the first time. We heard about it 10, 15 minutes before we started doing the show, letting us know that you remember Mayor Thorpe. You remember the Mayor Thorpe shooting, the anniversary of that shooting. It's the beginning of March, uh, just a short time ago. And you think of those, those lives that were snuffed out, those four young constables. I think of those mm-hmm. young Mounties and you look at the ages, like Peter Sheeman. I remember, for some reason, I remember he was 25 when he was killed. Like just young men serving uh, and young people serving their country mm-hmm. and, uh, and never know what they're going to walk into. You remember that was a, the Mayor Thorpe thing. You know, the, the, they were securing a, a, a scene, a crime. Yeah. They, were, they were securing a Quonset. That's what they were there for. It was mm-hmm. going to be it was going to be raided by police in the morning. And there was to be a police presence on that property, on the Roscoe property. And so they were there. Sheeman wasn't even in uniform yeah like sheeman wasn't if i remember correctly i'd hate if i get it wrong but if i remember correctly sheeman was there like with his pal who was also his colleague on duty he wasn't even wearing his uniform Mm -hmm. and as the story goes he had scrambled to try to get to the to the trunk of the cruiser to get out uh a firearm he didn't he wasn't even armed and uh it's just a horrific story especially Um, when young officers like not not that it's you know, any worse or, or better. Of course, what, it's all brutal. But. Yeah, but especially young officers because we want more young, brave people to want to become policemen and women, right? And we are, I don't, again, we don't want to speculate, but I am seeing on Twitter that they, they were a couple young officers in this situation. Yeah, um, and Dennis uh, letting us know, yeah, Edmonton's Police Chief Dale McPhee is going to speak in about an hour. Most of you are going to hear this later in the day, and so we will have uh, we'll have an update on this story for you tomorrow. Absolute gut punch. Um, we want to recognize our sponsors here on Real Talk. This is why we're able to bring you this show each and every day, and that includes our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. These are the DQs in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. We were lucky enough to get to spend some time uh, with the owners of the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton just the other night, Mark and Michelle Cardinal and, and Michael Lieber, who owns the Sherwood Park location. They're just absolute. You hear them talk about their staff. You hear them talk about their teams at these DQs and how proud they are of these people that show up to work every single day to make sure that you're getting the hot eats and the cool treats that DQ is so well known for. That includes my personal favorite, my personal recommendation, the Bacon 2 Cheese Deluxe Signature Stack Burger. Do not mess around with the two patty version. Go with the three patty triple. That's right, the Bacon 2 Cheese Deluxe Triple Signature Stack Burger. That's the Jespo recommendation at the DQ of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. You know, if I get one, Johnny, I'm going to put it on the dash of my vehicle and snap a photo. You always know when I'm at DQ. never gets out of the parking lot. That's why you got to follow me on Instagram so you can see my stories of all the signature stack burgers. Also, a big shout out to the family-owned business that is Eden Landscaping. Mike and his team bringing outdoor spaces to life including ours this summer. I can't wait to show you the photos. I'm going to show you the before and after. We're hiring Mike and his team because we've seen their work and what they do. You can check out their services, their portfolio online at landscapeedmonton.ca. This is an investment, but it's not just the money investment. This is an investment in your quality of life, right? This is a type of scenario where... You get the work done in your front or backyard or both, you're going to be more proud, more inclined 
to welcome guests into those spaces, right? So whether it's a hardscape, beautiful stonework, maybe you're looking to to bring in a retaining wall that'll not just, of course, add to the aesthetic, but, but also maybe keep the wall from collapsing. Or maybe it's one of those water features. There's nothing like walking your dog past a house with a water feature in the front yard. The trickle of yeah. that pond. I'm a big fan. Mike and his team do it all. You can check out Eden Landscaping online at landscapeedmonton.ca. And how cool last night, I was able to rub shoulders with the uh, senior leadership team at Local Environmental Services. Uh, They were there at this event in support of the Mental Health Foundation. You remember Johan Hari that was on our show a while ago, the the author of Stolen Focus? He He was on the show uh, two weeks ago tomorrow, you can you can go back, uh, you go to our YouTube channel, or you can, of course, go to our podcast archive. Why you can't pay attention? Are you addicted to your phone? Johan Hari with such an amazing insight into how our focus, our ability to pay attention has been stolen from us. Make sure you check out that interview if you haven't already. The team at Local Environmental Services was in the mix yesterday supporting Johan and his address to the supporters of the Mental Health Foundation. Local Environmental Services, remember earlier in the week presenting Mayor of the Mall? This is a team that gets what it means to be a good corporate citizen, and that's why we're so proud to partner with them, including Trash Talk. That's coming up on tomorrow's show. We wrap up every Friday reading your emails to talk at ryanjesperson.com. You're pissed off about something, quite frankly? Let us know about it. And of course, you could hear your email read during Trash Talk Fridays right here on uh, Trash... I just about called this BT. I just about called Real Talk, a show that I hosted 10 years ago, Breakfast Television. A little Easter egg for the long time. What is going on there? Uh, And and before we wrap, I did also want to give a big shout out to our friends at Alberta Views, the magazine for engaged citizens. Really neat to see so many Real Talkers yesterday in the live chat. As soon as I mentioned the promo code, I went and signed up. Did you? 50% off. It's 20 bucks for the whole year. 20 bucks for the whole year. That's crazy. This is wild. The promo code is A. V-R-J. Alberta Views, Ryan Jesperson. A-V-R-J is the promo code when you subscribe to Alberta Views at albertaviews.ca. One year, 10 issues delivered to your door for 20 bucks because it's 50% off with the promo code A-V-R-J. Alberta Views is the magazine for engaged citizens. I wanted to give you a shout out before we go. John, because uh, people may or may not know, we've mentioned it a couple times because we're starting to take it more seriously. Uh, Real Talk is on Instagram and TikTok, in Mm -hmm. addition to, of course, our Twitter profile, all three handles at Real Talk RJ. Mm -hmm. And you've been doing unbelievable work posting some of the highlights. TikTok is a totally different venue. It's very very quick. People want things in like 30 seconds or less. And so I'm looking at at some of the posts and and, uh, you can check it out on your phone if you do. Have an account on TikTok. Give us a follow at Real Talk RJ. Here's what I like. I mean, I, I like that you're you're picking the key moments from our interviews and our conversations. But you know what I like even more than that? What? I like the engagement. I yeah. like the fact that this the, the, the post from yesterday has 135 comments. The post from a couple of days ago has 537 comments. We gained 10,000 views just during the show on our, uh, our, our TikTok here. We're chatting about, you know. The regulator yesterday. And the Alberta Energy Regulator. And how it's an absolute disgrace. Uh, it's, it's an unbelievable scenario there. If you missed uh, that episode, of course, you can catch our full, full episodes on the podcast or on YouTube. But also, we encourage you to, to engage with us on Real Talk because we go out here every single day and we call this the most engaged 
talk audience in the country. And, and you know who that bugs? It bugs all the other talk shows. But when our <laughs> TikToks have 540 comments on them, what else do you call it? We appreciate you, Real Talkers. And I wanted to wrap with a couple of comments from yesterday. You may have seen our show yesterday, and we were talking about ESG, right? Environmental and social and governance. And is it worth it? Is it worth the investment in ESG? If you missed that interview, make sure you check it out. I saw a comment before we wrap from Matt Etherington in our live chat, and I wanted to read it. Matt says, I own a construction safety company. He says, we source everything local as much as possible. Matt says, we even pay extra for a company to bring in equipment to keep as much of our dollars in the communities where we live and work. We were asking the question, is this movement toward ESG a wise investment for corporations? Do consumers actually care if corporate citizens are responsible? And what should the consequences look like for corporate citizens that behave badly? I'm talking to you, Imperial Oil, with that oil sands leak at the Curl facility. I wanted to update you, Real Talkers. We do have an interview request in with Imperial Oil. I'm not going to take big runs at the company without giving them a platform to explain what took nine months to meaningfully report a toxic leak impacting the land and water by the Athabasca Chippewa First Nation. They've responded, and they've let us know that they'll take it into consideration. We hope to have a spokesperson from Imperial here on the show tomorrow or in an episode to come. Coming up tomorrow, speaking of that, it's Friday. And that means a Real Talk Roundtable presented by our friends at Urban Timber. Uh, we're going to be bringing back a couple of political commentators from different generations. That's right. Moa Mir on the West Coast. And you remember that kid, Wyatt Sharp? Just a phenom out of Ontario. We're going to be talking federal politics and reading some of your emails. We hope to see you tomorrow. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego, Human Resources Lena Shepard, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a Relay Project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com. 